You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Previously on Potting the Bubble. What we're going to experience over the next three months is groundbreaking. It's historic. The idea of the bubble is very simple. Once you're in, you can't go outside, basically for any reason. So these players are going to be confined to the property of Disney World for up to three months. You get down to Orlando and you are immediately ushered into your hotel room and told you can't step outside for seven days. It's not Shawshank, but it's not, you know, the the Ritz-Carlton either. This bubble is only as good as the weakest link. If one person screws this thing up, the the potential for everybody to get sick increases significantly. There's more than a billion dollars of television revenue at stake, and that's obviously a big deal. The financial health of the NBA is very, very important. You have to cram in a eight-game schedule and then go right into a traditional playoffs. You have to invest a lot of money in the health stuff up front to get that television payoff. The testing that's being done here is all private. They knew they would have positive tests when they got down there. They needed to to get through that, get everyone in the bubble, and then start having no positive tests. They have gotten there with that. There's a bubble within the bubble for players. Players get tested every single day. There's careful health monitoring. They require masks on campus. They require social distancing. If they didn't have buy-in from players, I mean, that is a league where players have felt empowered for a long time now. Uh, If they weren't comfortable, if they didn't feel safe, they would have said so. Even though there were a lot of players that considered not coming, and several players that ultimately decided not to for various reasons, the vast majority of the rank and file of the players were in favor of doing this. Welcome to a new series from SI where we dive deep inside the return of the NBA and life inside the bubble. I'm your host, Luis Miguel Echegaray. Today, life inside the bubble. What are players going through mentally, physically, as they continue to live and play in this unique setting? 
what are their daily routines and what does it feel like to experience the action inside an arena? And what are reporters going through as they cover the competition? From Sports Illustrated, this is Potting the Bubble. The worry that the bubble will burst in the NBA is basically coming down to this. Will players follow the rules, right? Will players keep it tight? That's SI senior writer Michael Rosenberg, who we heard from in episode one. I mean, they are quarantining the media to a point where I think a, a, a reporter would have to really go rogue. Uh, and I don't think we'll see that happen. There's very few of them. There aren't fans. This is really coming down to the players. That's the one part that the NBA just has to trust that their players have the most on the line uh, and will do this. Professional athletes tend to enjoy their social lives. They may try to replicate certain things. And the other thing which we've seen for all of us, we relax, right? You know, you say, well, we're going to have a socially distanced barbecue with a few people. We're not going to get that close. And then you've been there for two hours and you realize you're three feet away from somebody and you're not wearing a mask and you didn't even think about it. Well, what happens after a month after, you know, six weeks. I, I don't know. Uh, you're not out of the woods here, I don't think, until everybody goes home and, and somebody's got the trophy. As we learned in episode one, the NBA bubble would not have come to fruition without the support of the players, who overwhelmingly bought into the idea. But as Michael just said, their willingness to stick to the rules of the bubble will likely determine whether the plan succeeds or fails. So let's hear it straight from the players themselves who have been actively posting about the bubble experience on their social media feeds since arriving in Orlando in early July. You'll hear sounds from inside the NBA bubble throughout this episode. Yeah, man, I got a little, yeah, a little set up here. Yeah, got sage going over here, got a nice little view here. Yeah, man. That's Los Angeles Clippers guard Patrick Beverly introducing his followers on social media to his hotel room at Disney, where he'll be spending his time for the remainder of his 2020 NBA season. Electronic system here. Okay. And I got them white tees, y'all get at me. Bubble what you make it, man. If, as Pat says, the bubble is what you make it, then early returns on the experience were mixed. Celtic Center and his canter upon entering his room for the first time. All right, let's see. How is that hotel bubbles look like? That's it? Oh, my God. We're going to stay here for three months. I better get a good view. Oh, Lord. Not bad. So we're going to stay here, stay here for three months. <laughs> Lord help us. Oh, no. Players arriving in Orlando were given a welcome kit from the NBA. Houston Rockets guard Ben McElmore reacted as he opened his. Oh, yeah. Got a little mask and stuff. Okay. Check him out. Look, we got a little fire stick. Uh-uh. A little speaker. Appreciate the NBA. The food was a hot topic of early social media content. Portland Trailblazers forward Nazir Little was impressed. I ain't even gonna lie, Snyder. This is a great meal. We got the grilled Italian chicken here, the roasted veggies. Man, you got the fruit, man, essentials. Got the little carrot cake for the dessert. As was Lakers guard Quinn Cook. I ain't gonna lie. It's not that bad. 
Look at these wings, Slim. Look at the season on them jumps. While 76ers rookie Matisse Thibel couldn't dig in right away. Bon appetit. I don't have a fork. The chicken is chicken. I also don't have a napkin. Oh, maybe I'm supposed to use the lid as a spoon. No. Who do I call about this? The Heat Udonis Haslam ordered some extra supplies for his room. Yes, sir. Got my packages. Can't keep a real one down, boy. Yeah, buddy. I'm straight right now, boy. Thank God for Amazon. I see why that shit worth a trillion, billion, million, quadrillion dollars, boy. Cause that shit always on point. While Trailblazer center Hassan Whiteside planned on spending his initial quarantine period a little differently. I gotta stay in my room for 48 hours. Good thing I play Call of Duty. War zone. 10 straight hours of war zone. Then take a break. Then play 10 more hours of war zone. Then take a break. Play 10 more hours of war zone. Yeah, that's about, that's about how this is about to happen. These 48 hours about to be spent. Once cleared to move around the bubble freely, activities available to athletes include competitive outlets like fishing, bowling, and cornhole. Three, four, five. You're at, you're at 20. I had 17. 17. Exactly. Right, 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 right. 2019, that's what I said. 2018. Yeah. Hey, Tyler, give me your bucket, man. You got to do, man. That's what I got to do. Oh, I'm a dog! I'm a dog! I'm a dog! Let me make a public service announcement to my Instagram because I think this is very, I think this is a topic that needs to be touched on. Listen, in that game called Cornhole, I am the best of the best. You're my brother, but you are the worst Monopoly player ever. I just wanted I to didn't let know you know where that. you was going though. Hood bowling, one on one. With players bringing their own means of passing the time and a variety of activities available to them around different parts of the NBA campus, it might seem as though maintaining the integrity of the bubble shouldn't be so difficult. But SI senior writer Chris Mannix cautions that it won't be that simple. Activities are certainly limited inside the bubble. I mean, the NBA has tried to do some things. They had a DJ in the first weekend. That was a biblical failure. I mean, nobody showed up for that. Most players tell me the same things. Some of them are trying fishing for the first time because that's something you can do very easily. Everyone's got some kind of gaming system in their room. Uh, Myers Leonard is like the star of social media here because he's showing everyone how he how fast he can shotgun beers. It's a twelve ounce Coors Light. Cheers, everybody. It's fine now, but it's all gonna wear on these guys uh, in the coming weeks and months. There's only so many you know games of Fortnite you can play and. So many times you can catch the same fish over and over again and throw it back uh, into the pond. I mean, that just gets monotonous even for most avid of fishermen like, say, a Paul George who, who does it all the time. I told my teammates, fun fact of the day, 
your chance of being seven feet is one in two million. To see three seven footers, we got footers. Three seven footers and baby cold tops. <laughs> Disney is a magical place. Magic really do happen. I mean, you've seen guys, I think JaVale McGee, Matisse Teibel, uh, have started their own video series, their own YouTube series. You have guys challenging each other to shotgun beers around the campus. Uh, apparently, Dwight Howard was the only person who showed up to the pool party. Rohan Narkani is an NBA writer for Sports Illustrated and the host of SI's The Crossover. Rohan is not reporting from the bubble in Orlando, but shares his insight into the culture brewing within the confines of the NBA campus. We're getting a glimpse into what their lives are like. You know, the players, it's a, a fascinating experience, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so, so far as to say held hostage, but, you know, they're all kind of, you know, captive in this, you know, quote unquote bubble environment, whatever the NBA wants to call it, this campus environment. Uh, and I, I think they're finding new ways to entertain themselves. What we're really seeing is just kind of a microcosm of the situation in the country, right? There are people who maybe took the quarantining really, really seriously the first couple of weeks. And then by week five, uh, you know, maybe they're starting to go a little stir crazy and maybe they left the apartment a little bit more often than they were before. Uh, it's not impossible to see that with the NBA players. I mean, who knows the mental health effects it'll have being there in that specific new environment for so long. I will say, at the on the other hand, what you have is the shame of it, right? You don't want, want to be the guy who pops up in a tweet that's like, so-and-so broke, broke quarantine and is now you know, self-isolating for 10 days. You don't want to be that guy either. So, and I, I just think it's the time. It's going to be dealing with the time aspect. I mean, right now, in a way, I'm sure it's almost fun. It's just been a couple of weeks. It's new. You're surrounded by all your teammates. You're playing basketball again. But what happens in, in week five, it's it's impossible to predict. But I, I think it's really what all of us went through when we, when we first started, you know, shutting ourselves in. Just how much space do the players have to themselves? Media access to where players are living is highly restricted. But Washington Post national NBA writer and host of SI's Open Floor podcast, Ben Gulliver, helps paint a picture of the physical confines of life in the bubble. The media living quarters, it feels a lot like a college quad. From end to end, it only runs 0.2 miles. So not even a full lap around a, uh, you know, a track. On one end, you have uh, a security checkpoint. That's sort of where this little market is located, where we go to pick up our food on a daily basis. On the other end, you have a security checkpoint where they basically say you can't go on this path any further. Um, in between, you have five uh, mini hotels that are called casitas. Also, we've got access to a pool. We've got access to an indoor uh, recreation center. We've got access to a little outdoor activity area where you could play uh, like pickleball and uh, you know cornhole, things like that. Uh, but we are bounded on the other sides by a parking lot, which is basically empty and goes nowhere, and a lake, which supposedly has alligators in it because there's signs that say, watch out for the alligators. So we're boxed in pretty tight. The entire thing, if you walk around the perimeter of our area, is 0.8 miles. So it takes about 15 minutes to walk. So you could just imagine, you know, there's probably Walmarts out there that are bigger than our entire area that we can travel. And we're going to be living here for 94 nights. So um, it's better than being stuck only in a little hotel room with, uh, you know, two beds and a, a bathroom, but it's really a pretty confined area. Now, in terms of what the players have, they're spread out over three different hotel properties. We can actually see the nicest hotel that they're staying in, which is called the Grand Destino from where we are. 
I wouldn't call it luxury, but it's it's newer and it's pretty nice. I suppose the best rooms in there um, are uh, you know suitable for the types of VIPs that they have here. And on each floor, the teams are kind of allowed to decorate it. So there have actually been some behind-the-scenes videos like of the Toronto Raptors where uh, they, they showed off their floor. They've got the Raptors logo on the elevators. Um, they've converted certain rooms into like workout or training rooms. Uh, and they've done a pretty nice job with it to make their players comfortable. The best eight teams, the top four seeds from each conference are staying there. So the Lakers, Clippers, and Bucks, like your three top contenders, Giannis, LeBron, and Kawhi are all staying in the same hotel. So just imagine, you know, game three of the NBA Finals and LeBron beats Giannis and the Bucks have to come back and they see the the Lakers in the lobby. I mean, that would just kill me, wouldn't it? It's just like, oh man, like can't even go to get room service because we might run into the Lakers. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. We've heard a lot from players who are getting used to their new reality on the NBA campus in Orlando. And again, an overwhelming majority of players were on board with the bubble plan as the NBA sought to restart its season. But not everyone opted in. There are plenty of players that had issues with all this, like a Fred Van Vliet with uh, Toronto. I mean, Davis Bertans opted out with the Washington Wizards. He's going to be a free agent this summer, and he's looking at a contract that could be worth north of $10 million per year, and Washington is part of this experience, but the Wizards, at best, are going to be a first-round exit in the playoffs, so Berton's elected not to play. Avery Bradley, of course, has a child who has respiratory issues, and Bradley, who would probably be going until you know mid-October with the Lakers, if things go according to chalk, uh, he wouldn't be able to see his child because the child couldn't wouldn't be comfortable going into the bubble or coming to Florida or traveling at all. Kyrie Irving was one of the driving forces behind not going, but that brings us to a different set of circumstances, which is the social justice issues that are happening in this country right now. Kyrie uh, was among many players that were troubled by the idea that with all that's going on in the country, they, they don't want to be a distraction to that. So that was another layer of, of things that need to be unpacked and figured out how the NBA could assure players that the social justice movement uh, won't get lost in the shuffle of Ben Simmons back or LeBron's chase for a championship and that these players don't become kind of the welcome distraction for people uh, to move on from it. There are a lot of guys that are taking post-practice availabilities 
and post-game availabilities as opportunities to speak out on this movement. Um, I take this time to uh, give my condolences to the family of the Taylors. Uh, Breonna Taylor, rest in peace. Uh, George Floyd, rest in peace. Justice for Breonna Taylor. I want her family to know, and I want the state of Kentucky to know that we feel for it and we want justice. Basketball is secondary. It's our job, obviously. We have a responsibility uh, to, to fulfill those obligations, but it's also our job to fulfill and, and protect our neighborhoods and protect the people uh, that look like us and come from places like us and don't exactly have the same voices that we do. A lot. I've seen a video today of a black man inside like a Walmart or, or Target or whatever trying to buy a bike for his son. And the cops was called on him. He had a receipt and everything. And the cops was called on him. They arrested him inside the store and took him outside. And he, I mean, it's just heartbreaking, man. You, you guys don't understand. Unless, you, <laughs> unless you're a person of color, you guys don't understand. I understand that you might feel, feel for us, but you can never really uh, truly understand what it is to be black uh, in America. The NBA has been one of the most vocal sports leagues in the world. Here is Jarrell Harris, NBA editor and writer for Sports Illustrated. We've seen guys wearing the Trayvon Martin uh, gear back in, I think, 2014 with the Miami Heat and the Eric Garner shirts, like, I can't breathe. So they've always been very critical of all these moments. And I think all the NBA players are doing a great job for keeping the movement alive, like Tobias Harris, Marcus Smart, Jeremy Grant. Like, during these interviews, they want to keep it, keep the focus on Breonna Teller. So I think they're doing a great job. And yeah, I think they're keeping the NBA on its toes and making sure they get all their messages out. These guys know there's a ton of eyeballs on them. The guys are going to have some of the slogans on their jerseys, right? Black Lives Matter and, and things of that nature. They're going to be having the opportunity to wear that on their jerseys. The courts are going to be painted with Black Lives Matter insignia. I think the players uh, have done a good job of maintaining the awareness of these issues. You know, the league, I think it's been a little clunky so far how they've handled it. I think that they are a willing partner to the players in this kind of movement at the same time, you know, letting players put messages on the back of the Jersey, you know, that's such a restrictive list. Uh, I I don't know that that is going to land as great as the league would hope. It's not an insignificant step. You know, it's not nothing. The visibility is important, but I think the focus needs to be on what actionable steps is the league willing. Are they able to take moving forward uh, to really kind of put their money where their mouth is uh, for this movement as a whole? Do you think that's going to happen? Are you optimistic about the action that will follow the message? I'm a little optimistic, if only because I think the players are going to continue to continue to put pressure on the league. You know, obviously, right now the NBA is dealing with a million logistical, you know, issues every day, trying to get uh, their season back off the ground. So, unfortunately, you know, it it, it sounds crass to say I don't know where the social justice stuff falls in their list of priorities. I'm just trying to make sure everyone is safe and healthy right now. But I do think that eventually they will, they will come around to making sure that there are proper actions. Um, I think the reaction has been, been fairly well, like compared to like other like sports leagues and fans, like especially the NFL, it's like two different worlds compared to the NBA when it comes to these issues. And I'm just proud of, like, all the NBA players for, like, stepping up. Like, you have great role models like LeBron. You have Tobias Harris stepping up now. And seeing all the young guys especially come out in these interviews and say, I'm just going to keep the focus on Breonna Teller and Black Lives Matter. So it's great seeing that from my side of things.
We've talked a lot about what the players' lives looks like off the court as they get acclimated to life within the bubble, as well as the backdrop of social issues that players have used this opportunity to keep in the public discourse. It's an interesting, complex situation, further complicated by the fact that as all of this unfolds, NBA games will need to be played. So what kind of product will the NBA be putting on the courts at the ESPN Wide World of Sports Complex? How are the players responding to this change? And is the league leaning into the weirdness of the situation or trying to replicate a normal game environment? Chris Mannix and Ben Golliver break down what they've seen so far from the action on the court inside the bubble. You know, the basketball experience, while certainly unique, is not one that's been uncomfortable for many of the players that I've talked to. Uh, it certainly is an adjustment as you step out onto the floor and instead of seeing a crowd, you see giant screens that flank the baseline and that are behind the scorer's table and the bench. Uh, but once they get into the flow of the game, for a lot of the guys that I've talked to that have played so far, uh, it just does feel like it's basketball. It won't feel like the normal playoffs, and there won't be fans, which is going to be easily the biggest difference, right? Because playoff basketball gets intense. The places get loud. These arenas are going to have basically two dozen people in them. For the bench, it's it becomes part of your responsibility to provide energy for your team. Usually that energy is provided by the fans and the people in the building. Without anybody in the building, players have to be much more vocal and much more supportive of their teams in certain situations. I mean, I talked to Lou Williams of the Clippers right after his game, and he had lost his voice after just one game because he was so loud on that bench. And he said that was something that was going to be an adjustment. They pipe in a lot of organ noise or music. There is the digital drumbeat of defense that's played on opposite possessions. There's music played on offensive possessions for the other team, as you would often have in NBA arenas. It's not like it's an empty gym with no sounds where you hear everything. There's there's going to be a lot that's covered, and it's probably intentional, you know, by the by the NBA it, with the music in the background. The league is still in an experimental phase with all this, trying to see what works and, you know, what just comes off as goofy. And one of the things they'd like to do is to have fans that are watching these games via Zoom for the home team and have them up on the screen behind the scores table and maybe all the screens, frankly, uh, you know, watching the game to have it kind of be an interactive experience. They, they think that's going to work. Maybe there could be hundreds or thousands of fans of the, quote, home team that will be able to watch via Zoom like they're in the arena. The format is the typical four uh, rounds of, of best of seven series. There's no home court, uh, but obviously you're going to, if you're the, the better team, you're the higher seed, you're going to get to start, uh, quote unquote, at home. Uh, they will use a play-in game to determine the eighth seed if it's uh, close enough between the eighth and ninth seed to warrant. So that's a little bit of an incentive for some of the teams they invited down here to have a shot at making the playoffs. Ultimately, they brought 22 teams uh, down here. They did that because they wanted to be able to play uh, regular season games and because they wanted to just increase the total number of games they were going to try to televise. Um, you know, obviously more games, more money, and that helps pay for this entire project. 
Um, those teams, you know, that are like the the six that are currently outside the playoffs, will need to get within four games of the eighth seed to qualify for a play-in tournament. They'll have to be the ninth seed to do that. So um, it's a little bit of a twist. We'll see if that winds up being interesting or if it winds up all just kind of being, you know, a bunch of hot air. But ultimately, by mid-August, they will be starting a playoffs with 16 teams like normal, eight from each conference, and proceeding forward to crowning a champion. And it will take them until mid-October, if all goes right, to crown their champion. I think it's going to work. Um, I think it's certainly going to be different, but I think what helps is that the league is not requiring these players to play in cavernous arenas or stadiums. I mean, the the digital technology is quite literally on top of them. Like these screens are right behind where the players sit on the bench. The baseline screens are just, you know, 10, 15 feet behind the baskets. So it's a very enclosed space that the league is playing in that makes it feel almost like a practice facility. I think it's going to make it a lot easier for these games to be played and for the players uh, to adjust. I mean, look, there'll be a mental hurdle that players that are going to have are going to have to get past, especially as we get deeper into this process. But for now, it seems like everything is breaking the right way for the NBA, whether it's the the, the negative testing that's going on or the facilities that they've constructed, three of them, that uh, are able to house these games. Life inside the bubble is, like the bubble itself, delicate, but also extremely unique. There is a Truman Show quality to it as we in the outside world inspect every move every action, and every decision thanks to the overwhelming amount of content. But we, as NBA fans and most importantly human beings, have to be careful in making sure we don't fingerpoint this rare scenario. Players are people, after all, and they are bound to make mistakes. And when people leave their families for three months and only have limited access to some kind of living inside a complex, then certain issues are bound to happen. Health and safety above anything else. But after that, embracing the weirdness of the bubble might be as important as the games themselves. On the next and final episode of Potting the Bubble, after all that's been said and done, after the logistics and guidelines, storylines and expected narratives, we ended with this. What can we expect? And because we can't help ourselves, what can we predict? We'll talk to our writers and Dr. Zeke Emanuel, bioethicist, WHO advisor, and a key architect of the Affordable Care Act. And he will help us understand the ethical and medical aspects of the bubble and what to maybe anticipate.